Hey everybody, it's Pastor Will. Welcome or welcome back to the Brazos Fellowship Podcast. Thank you for listening today. And at the end of this episode, please take a moment to subscribe to this podcast if you aren't already. But more importantly, I hope the following presentation inspires you to take the next step in your faith journey. Enjoy. It is great to see you guys. Thanks so much for being here today as we continue a series we started last week called Trinity. As we look at the unique, beautiful essence of a Trinitarian God. And my hope in this series is that you will come to know God better than you ever have before. It's important that we slow down and look closely at the person of God. And that's what this series is all about because there are many counterfeits in the land, as it were. Uh, I had a good friend of mine that uh, worked with the FBI and would talk about how one of the things that the FBI does is to um, identify counterfeit bills and to take them out of circulation. Well, one of the ways that they train their agents to do this is that they study the authentic original. And they know all the little imperfections and nuances of that original. That way, the moment they see the counterfeit, that's it. And they can eliminate it. And that's what I hope that you will begin to do a little bit more, a little bit more through this series. It's like, I feel like I'm coming to know God as he has revealed himself in a closer, more intimate way. That's my desire, my hope for you through this, this whole series. And last week as we got started talking about the Father, talking about the Father, is that before God was creator, before he was ruler, down to the core of who he is, down to the bottom of his essence, he is a loving Father. And that is the place from which he does everything else that he does. As a matter of fact, Father is not only who God is, but it's how he does everything else that he loves as a a loving father. He forgives as a loving father. He restores people as a loving father. He even judges as a loving father. He does everything as a loving father. Now this week, we're gonna turn our attention to the eternal son of God, Jesus, and his role in the Holy Trinity. And how Jesus is instrumental in taking the love of God, which is his as well, and makes it available to us. Now, it's important that when we start to understand, just like we did with God the Father, we start with God the Son, we go all the way back. Go back as far as we have record as, in terms of Scripture and go back to the beginning of creation and look at this universe that God has made that God says it is good, that he made a good universe, that it was beautiful, joyful, harmonious, and loving. And you can still, it's still a good universe. You can still look around and see beauty, and you can see harmony, and you can see joy, and you can see love. You can see the love of God manifested in different ways, but it has changed, hasn't it? It has been marred. It's been marred by hatred and pain and death. And pretty much in that order is how it has happened. And because of that change, we have to, when we come to Genesis chapter three, the fall of humankind, 
the moment and point in history when sin entered into the world. Now, let me just say real quick, even if you feel like, well, this story in Genesis 3, I have a hard time, Will, believing that it is historically accurate. Here, let me help you with this a little bit. How we get there is that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, quoted Genesis continually. He he continually looked back at it and said, I believe it is the authoritative word of God. He says, it is not this way from the beginning. From the beginning it was, and Jesus would fill in the gaps of, here's what God intended from the beginning. In other words, look back. If you wanna know what God's intent for the future is, look back at what he meant from the beginning. And this is important for us to do as well today. So what exactly happened to Adam and Eve in Genesis 3 to make us need salvation, okay? Now that may seem like a very elementary question, but it is deeper maybe than you have considered before. And a more simple way to put it is, what went wrong? What went wrong in Genesis 3? And to answer what went wrong, we have to ask an even deeper question, what was originally right in Genesis 1 and chapter 2? And to answer what went right, we have to consider, well, what kind of God are we talking about here? because some people have really rejected a Trinitarian um, portrayal of God in Scripture. That is certainly the way God is portrayed in Scripture is that he is Trinity, but some people have rejected that and say, no, I don't, re- I don't accept that. I believe in kind of a single person God. And as we established last week, when you have a single person God, a single person God cannot create the universe out of love. A single person God is only capable of ruling over those who serve him from a place of just rulership. There's not really love there, it's really obedience. So to a God like that, a single person God, what would be good? Good would be you obey my laws. Good would be good behavior. So what would be going wrong to a single person God? Going wrong would be you disobeyed. I told you not to, and you did it anyway. So you may be saying, well, Will, when you look at Genesis chapter three, that's kind of what we see, and you would be right. It is kind of what we see. Adam and Eve were told, do not eat of that fruit from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and they did it anyway. God said not to, they did it anyway. But that answer of saying, well, they just simply misbehaved, they disobeyed, is not near deep enough of an answer to the question, what went wrong in Genesis chapter three. And I'm not giving you Will Lewis's opinion, I'm giving you Jesus Christ's opinion. This is what Jesus said, that sin is far deeper of an issue than our behavior. As a matter of fact, there's a conversation over in Matthew chapter 23, where he's talking to the religious lawyers, the, the lawgivers and the Pharisees of his day, some of the most religious people of his day that were really good when it came to behavior. They were really good at keeping rules and laws. They kept all the Old Testament laws, the, the, the uh, Levitical laws of the Old Testament, and in addition to that, the Pharisees added 640 other laws just to try to keep you from breaking one of the original laws of God. So, I mean, you're talking about hundreds and hundreds, even thousands of laws to try to keep current in your mind that you won't accidentally break one of them. And they were really good at not breaking the rules. But here's what, ironically, what Jesus said to them in verse 27 of Matthew 23. He says, you hypocrites. 
Now, if you want to get somebody's attention in a conversation, just yell that at them right up front, right? That, that'll, that's an attention getter. What is a hypocrite? It comes from the Greek word hupokrates. It means a person under a mask. It's like a stage actor. You act one way out here, but inwardly you're somebody totally different. That's what he's saying. He goes on to say, you are like whitewashed tombs which look beautiful on the, let's say, on the outside, but on the inside you're full of the bones of the dead and everything unclean. In other words, it's Jesus' way of saying, man, you put on a great show, but that's all it is. Your behavior, you look so religious. Oh my gosh, everybody would look at you and say, I'd never be as holy as that dude. Wow, look how good. He does good all the time. There is nobody gooder than him, right? That's, that's the kind of people that he's talking to. But he says, but in your heart, you don't love God. You love yourself. It's all about you looking good. That's why you do all this good stuff, so that you can... Look good in front of everybody. And Jesus is saying, that's not, not what I want. That is not what I'm looking for. I'm not looking for a bunch of do-gooder people who just behave in appropriate ways. I want something deeper. If that's what he wanted, this next conversation I want to share with you would be very different. Because I want to show you a moment where Jesus, this is one of the most peculiar and interesting moments where Jesus is literally talking to a man at this region called the Gerizines where he is possessed by a demon. So he's talking to literally the manifestation of the devil himself. And let me just show you what unfolds right here because this is really fascinating. Here's Jesus talking to this demon-possessed man. All right, and the demon-possessed man comes up and when he saw Jesus, he cried out and fell at his feet shouting at the top of his voice, what, will you, um, what do you want with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? I beg you, don't torture me. Now, think about this for just a minute. And just forget for a second that this guy is demon-possessed, okay? This is an incredibly religious prayer. He comes in, he He's humble and contrite. His posture is one of worship. He falls down at the feet of Jesus. He speaks a bunch of religious lingo, right? He seems to be earnest. He seems to be really honest. He's fearful of Jesus. He's fearful because he's scared of what Jesus might do. He's scared of his power. He's scared of who he is. He even uses honorable titles to talk to Jesus. Jesus, son of the most high God. Now let's rewind the tape for just a second. If we are talking about a single person God in heaven who defines good as doing good, right behavior, just follow the rules, then if we use that as our standard for what sin and what good and bad sin and good is, then right here in this situation, the devil is not sinning. He's doing everything right. So the question I want us to ask together, what is the one thing missing from the devil's prayer? Think about it for a second. It's love, isn't it? He doesn't love Jesus. He's contrite, he's humble. He doesn't wanna get you know, vengeance exacted upon him right there. He's scared of Jesus, but he doesn't love Jesus. So let's back up for a second. If we start with a triune God, a Trinitarian God of love, 
and go all the way back. How does that change what was right in Genesis 2 and what was wrong in Genesis 3? How does this change? We have to go back to Genesis chapter 1, verse 27, where God says, I have made you in my image. Male and female, he created them in the image of an almighty, trinitarian, loving God. So, if we start there, that you have been made in the image of a loving Trinitarian God, that means, like God, that you deep down in your deepest heart, you crave, you delight in harmonious, loving relationships. More than anything else, some of you maybe came here today to hear this, your heart is longing for, it, it hungers for, it delights in harmonious, loving relationships both with God and with other image bearers. This is how God has made us. As a matter of fact, Jesus tells us in his ministry, not only was this how you were made, it is the first and second commandment that you ought to keep above all else. In Matthew chapter 22, Jesus says to love the Lord your God with all of your your heart, right? All of your soul and all of your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it. To love your neighbor as who? As yourself, right? This is what God, this is the reason and this is the thing for which you were created. This is the most important, deepest longing of your heart. Why? because of whose you were created in the image of, that you are like him, and this is how he is. And every time we break with this, ladies and gentlemen, we suffer the consequences. Every time we step away from that, we suffer the consequences. So what went wrong in Genesis chapter three? Adam and Eve, it wasn't that they stopped loving, they were made in the image of a loving Trinitarian God. That was set. That, that, that was, they were already made that way. They couldn't change that. But what did happen was that the love that they had in their heart, it got twisted. It got manipulated in the wrong direction. It began to hurt not only them individually, but those around them. The Apostle Paul tells us in 2 Timothy that he explains that when sin enters the life of a believer, really of any person, what happens is that it is an issue of love that has gotten twisted. And where is the first place that the love tends to go off the rails, go off the tracks? He tells us right here. People will be lovers of who? Of themselves. Lovers of money and what money can give them. Power, status, joy, pleasure, whatever. They'll become boastful and proud and abusive and disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, and here's the irony, ultimately without love. They haven't lost the capacity to love, but they don't have any more love in them because they have lost their connection with the source of love of the universe. They stopped loving the one that could fill them with love, Under, become unforgiving, why? Because they're not connected to the one who gives grace to forgive, right? Slanderous, without self-control, 
Just whatever their desires dictate, their desires become their God. Brutal, not lovers of the good. Treacherous, rash, conceited. Lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. You know why? Because their pleasures have become their God. Paul's point here, and this is so important, we can't stop loving because that's the way we were created. It's how we were made. But it has gotten twisted It's gotten twisted, and it gets twisted in every single one of us. Nobody's exempt. I'm not exempt. Nobody's exempt from this. It happens in all of us. And when we go back and look at the original sin of Adam and Eve in the garden and the deception from the devil through the serpent, when they looked at the forbidden fruit, we're told that they saw that it was good for knowledge. They thought, we're going to be smarter if we eat this. We're going to be like God. We will be our own gods. We can call the shots in our own life. You make up your own rules. You speak your own truth. Does any of this sound kind of familiar? You are the one who makes the shots and calls the rules, and you dictate whatever happens to you, and you do whatever you want to do. It's a very destructive road. It sounds so freeing, but it's a trap. He shows us this act of sin. It is when Adam and Eve, like when they broke and their love for God got replaced with their love for themselves, this is when sin entered the world. In other words, the act of sin is a manifestation of the twisted love in their hearts and in ours too. It's the, when the sin comes out here behaviorally, it's simply just responding to what's already been going on in your heart. Like anytime someone lies, cheats, murders, commits adultery, whatever, it doesn't matter, deceives, slanders somebody, talks bad about them behind their, it's something, that, it's just manifesting what's in their heart. Jesus even said the mouth speaks from the overflow of the heart. It is where the the love that was supposed to be guided in the right direction has been disordered and manipulated and twisted. And this is what has happened. And the half-brother of Jesus, James, talks about how does this mechanics of temptation happen in our life? I just want to walk through this real quickly. I think this is so helpful. Here's what James says. Each person when is tempted is tempted when they are dragged away by their own evil desire and enticed. This word enticed literally is the Greek word for lured. Do we have any fishermen and women in the room? Anybody here like to fish? Okay, okay, a few of you, thank you. No, that's a wonderful, that's a biblical sport. I hope you keep doing it, that's wonderful. Don't feel ashamed to say you're fishing, unless you're doing it on Sunday morning. Anyway, um, um, <laughs> just kidding. All right, well, but here's what you know. When you fish, you know the importance of a good lure, right, that can trick that fish. It's simply taking a desire that the fish already has and is saying, oh, come over here. I'll satisfy your desire. And of course, that is not what the lure is there to do. It's to hook you and bring you into shore. And this is exactly what Satan's plan is for each of us. He takes a desire that God meant for good and he twists it. He, he appeals to an evil side of that desire and it gets disordered. And we feel 
confirmed and affirmed that no, this is right and this is good and it's okay and everybody's doing it and come on, let's just get with it, right? Why am I so miserable? Why can't I ever have peace? Why am I? Because you've been enticed, you've been lured away and then after the desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin and sin when it is full grown gives birth to death. It can destroy you. It can end your life early. The thief comes to kill, steal, and destroy. John's, John 10.10, 10, this is Jesus speaking about Satan himself. This is his agenda. And he says, be careful. Sin is love twisted by evil desires. That's what sin is. He's simply appealing to this deep down longing for love that God has put in you, but it's being satisfied in an incorrect way. Some of the best thinking that's ever been done on this theological topic was done in the fourth century by this philosopher theologian who lived in North Africa, and consequently his ideas and his writing has influenced Western civilization for over a millennia. I'm talking about St. Augustine of Hippo, and he essentially had this thought when he was writing about this idea. He says, our fundamental problem, like the human race, is not that we have behaved wrongly, but it's that we have been enticed to love wrongly. We can't stop loving. We are always, always motivated by love. We just wind up loving the wrong things. We are made in love and for love. You can't get away from love as a human being. That's just the way we were made. But we either love the wrong things or the right things in the wrong order, he says. It is disordered love. It is twisted love. That's what messes us up. So let me give you a couple of examples where that can happen today. And I've seen this happen in people's lives. I've seen it start to happen in my life and thank the Lord he's shown it to me. Maybe through somebody else's observation, my wife's or somebody else. Or I just noticed it through my time alone with him and go, thank you God, let me fix that. There is nothing wrong with loving your career, your job. As a matter of fact, I hope you do. I hope you have a job you love. Not everybody does, right? I love my job. I hope you love your job. But if you love your job more than your teenage daughter, your teenage son, that is disordered. And it will malform that relationship between you and your child. It will be a major issue. It will hurt them. It will hurt you in the long run. There is nothing wrong with, as a matter of fact, it is good to love your children. I hope you do love your children. I love my kids, right? But if you love your kids more than you love God, right? That is disordered love. And that disorder of love will deform your relationship both with God and with your children. It will hurt both of them. I talked about this a couple of weeks ago. It's not even wrong to love sex. I talked about this like the whole sermon, and now I can't seem to stop talking about it. Anyway, <laughs> it's nothing wrong with loving sex. As a matter of fact, we were made sexual beings. This is how we were made. As a matter of fact, in, in uh, Genesis chapter 1, verse 28, we were told to be fruitful and multiply. There's only one way you can do that, right? This was a command from God, and he made us this way. But, 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 
when sex becomes a pseudo-God and we begin to derive from it our identity. This is how I identify. When we use sexuality as our sort of filter for what communities we can belong to, our sexuality and our sex is what tells us if life is satisfying or not. We are using sex in a soteriology way. In other words, we're using sex as a form of salvation and it is not just that it is morally wrong, it, although that's part of it, it's just that sex could not possibly ever satisfy the deepest yearnings and achings of the human soul for real love, real intimacy, and to be completely and totally deeply accepted. That is something only God can give you. And we are looking to get it in the wrong places. And it's slowly destroying us as a human race. And for the first place that we must turn back to God, we have to understand that it is our hearts, that our love must be fixed back upon Him. This means that merely altering our behavior will do no good. It can't start with just behavior modification. That is not what we're after here. Behavior is a manifestation of what's happening deeper. This is a disordered love of our hearts and must be turned back to God. And when the heart is turned back, when the heart is right, then it will flow forth in every other way. You will bear fruit, as the New Testament says. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. The fruit of the Spirit will begin to flow forth from your life because the heart of you, the center of your soul, has finally had proper order before God. It's beautiful when that begins to happen right. Now, let me just share with you the most astonishing thing about this whole sin and rejection of God is not anything that we have done. The most astonishing part of this is God's reaction, how he responds to our rejection and sin. Because in God's reaction, how he responds gives us one of the most beautiful, deep views of the depth of God's love for all of us when we really begin to understand what does this little phrase mean that God is love, we start to get a glimpse of it when we look at what he did in response to our sin. And in 1 John chapter 4, verse 9 and 10, here's what we're told. This is how God showed his love among us. He, what did he do? He sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. And he goes on to say, and this is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us. And he, what did he do? He sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. That God the Father sends the son. Now I want you to see that God the Son and the Holy Spirit is working 100% in unison with the Father. That the Trinity is working as one, even though three persons working as one. And here's what we see in 1 John chapter 3. We're going to go back one chapter. We're told, and this is focusing more on God the Son. It says, and this is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ, what did he do? He laid down his life for us. 
This was Jesus. I love how the Apostle John is showing, here's what the, the Father was doing, here's what the Son was doing, and then next week we're gonna talk a little bit more about the Holy Spirit's role, but the Father and the Son were working as one, completely and totally unified, and it's so important that you understand, nobody took Jesus' life. They could not have done it without his consent because he is God. He is God. He tells us as much in John chapter 10, verse 18. No one can take my life from me. I sacrifice it voluntarily. He wants you to see. This is a rescue mission we're all doing together. Father, Son, Holy Spirit for the human race to reunite you so that the love of God can be back in your heart. You can be reordered the way God created and intended for you from the beginning. I sacrifice it voluntarily for I have the authority to lay it down when I want to and also to take it up again. Jesus is showing us, woo, don't you be thinking that I'm just down here like a rag doll being jerked around, I am volunteer. I volunteered for this job, and I will see it through to the end. And nothing short of the power of the most high living God can pull off what he's about to do. He is God, the eternal son. It's so powerful. And Jesus gives us this beautiful glimpse right towards the end of his public ministry, right before, it's the high priestly prayer recorded for us in John chapter 17, right before the cross. Jesus says this as he's praying to the Father. He says, righteous Father, though the world does not know you, I know you, and they know that you have sent me. I have, no, I have made you known to them and will continue to make you known to them in order that, and he's showing us why. Why did he make God known to us? In order that the love you have for me may be in them. Do you see him saying, I'm going to restore the distorted, twisted love that has come into their heart now can be restored, it can be made right, it can be corrected this love for them and that I myself may be in them that Jesus is saying and it's not just love it's, it's Jesus' presence and this happens through the Holy Spirit we'll talk more about that next week that Jesus comes to dwell in us I've been crucified with Christ I no longer live but Christ lives in me he shows us this is what I've come to do. You're not going this alone. I'm doing this with you. Don't you ever forget it. And I've come to fill you with the love that me and the Father have had and the Holy Spirit from all eternity past. We make it available to you right now. You see, the love of the Father has eternally had for the Son is available for those who believe in him. And now we can enjoy the son as the father always has that love that they have for each other can be ours for the taking, for us to connect with and to understand and to live in and out of that. It's the love that we were made to live for. But the thing is that our loves too, they get disordered, they get twisted so the question I want you to really think about as we get ready to close out with our prayer is where has disordered love happened in your heart today? Where is it happening right now? God wants a little piece of your day every day. What gets your day instead of God? What gets your time? What gets prioritized? 
He, he wants you to come and talk to him, pray to him. Let his word wash over your soul. Let it renew and refresh to bring back that harmony and that joy and that love that he intended from the beginning of all time. He's saying, my kingdom's here. You've got to live across the grain, against the grain of this world, but it can be done, and I will help you do it. But you can't do it alone. You've got to trust me. You've got to trust me. Where in your life right now do you need to turn to him and say, God, this has gotten out of order? Once again, thanks for listening. If you live in the Brazos Valley, we would love for you to engage with us at one of our weekend services. For directions, service times, and information about our fabulous children's and student environments, visit us at brazosfellowship.com. That's brazosfellowship.com.